I'm going to put this up here today, not to taunt anybody. As I said in the earlier service, I have no reason to taunt people with a Baylor Cup this year. The glass is truly at least half empty, Um, but I'm going to use it for something else this morning. There is an impulse in this text. There is an instinct in this text that I think all of us can resonate with and will resonate with at different points in our life. There are several instincts actually, but the one that really stuck out to me upon first reading was Moses saying to God, if you're not there, we don't want to be there. We don't want to go there without you there. We're we're not going to go there unless you lead us there. We don't want to be anywhere where you are not. And if you consider where they'd been in slavery for the past 400 years in Egypt, you can understand that impulse. We don't want to go anywhere where you are not God. This is kind of the same impulse that we had, actually the same exact impulse that we had as we prepared for our Imagine Retreat last April. Spending months, if not an entire year, looking at ways we could learn to better attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we don't want to go anywhere that God is not. Because we want to make sure that as we move into the future together, we're following God into that future, that wherever we go is where God is and where God wants to lead us. That is the impulse that we see Moses describing here. And I think it's an impulse that we engage in both worrying and wondering ways, just as we see it happening with the people of God throughout Scripture from beginning to end. It is this God with us instinct, this desire to be with God and for God to be with us, and this fear that something we may do or not do could put us in a situation where God is not with us, and we are not with God. Now, to introduce this idea, I was trying to think of an appropriate story when I looked back into the chapter and realized that the introduction that the biblical narrative gives to this story is the best possible one anyway. And it comes right on the heels of the story that we heard last week. The story we heard last week about Moses being up on the mountain, uh, getting the Ten Commandments, and the people are down here, and where's Moses, and where's God, and we want to be with God, and we want God to be with us, and so what do they do? They take all their jewelry, and they melt it down, and they create this golden calf that is supposed to represent God's presence with them, because they need God to be with them, and they, and they want to be with God. But then we know in response to that, Moses comes down from the mountain and both God and Moses are angry, really upset. And basically what happens if you turn back to the beginning of this chapter is that we see God, before God promises God's presence to them, we see God saying, okay, I'm not going to take away the promise to put you into a land overflowing with milk and honey. I'm not going to take away the promise of the promised land, but if I have to go one more step on this road trip with you, I am going to lose my ever-loving mind. 
That's actually, it's a quote from the Scripture. That's, that's what it says there. And because God is love, we know God said ever-loving, even if we don't see that right here, because God is ever-loving. And it says, God says, if I have to go one more step on this journey with you, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send an angel to walk with you, and you can follow the angel and go into the promised land with the angel. The angel's going to protect you, but I'm not going to go with you because if I have to listen to you all for one more minute... My head's going to explode. I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind, and I'm going to kill you. That is exactly what the text says. Now, when we think about God as a parent, which Jesus in his stories talked about God a lot as a parent, we don't think about things like this. This is not the image that jumps out at us, but you know... If you're an adult and you're in this room and you've ever taken a child on a road trip, you realize the analogy is much closer than it may seem. Because at some point on a long road trip, and most of our road trips with our children are to Texas and back from one point or another, and that can be 10 to 12 hours, something like that. At some point in that journey, there is almost always, especially when they're little, a corner that's going to turn and things are going to get very, very dark. Now, I thought I might tell you a story about this, but I needed to get Jackson's permission first. I like to do that, so I asked Jackson for permission to tell this particular story, which he doesn't remember, but he's heard it told several times before, and Jackson said, yes, you can tell that story, but if you tell that story, and he grinned and said, at some point after the service, you're going to have to take me out to coffee. So, <laughs> so that'll happen. There's a church conference after this, but that'll, that'll happen um, at some point. It was one of our early road trips. We were in the Toyota Camry coming back from Texas or going to Texas, and we were starting to feel like maybe we had we'd crossed a threshold here, like, like we'd figured something out or he'd figured something out. He was back there in his car seat, and it had been a relatively calm trip. I mean, we were really excited about this. What we found on that trip and what we would find on trip after trip after trip after this, but there is a point in there when you're about an hour or two from home where you think you've made it that you realize you really haven't. And they begin to lose it, and you begin to lose it too. And this is what happened on this particular trip. Um, Jackson began to uh, get upset, and he began to engage in a mantra that I was trying to figure out how I was going to own this and, and really sort of express this to you. And I wasn't going to have Jackson do it because he doesn't remember it. But I thought at the early service, and they did a good job, I would just get you to do this. So the mantra was just over and over and over again, um, screaming at the top of his lungs, I want my drink, Okay. It sounded something like, I want my drink! Something like that. <laughs> but worse. I, I want to see if you can say that back to me. So I'm going to go a three, two, one, and then I'm going to point to you, and you're in unison. You're going to give me that, okay? You're just going to give it to me, and it'll wake you up. Three, two, one. I want my drink! Oh, yeah! There you go. And it kind of had a Texas twang to it, so we were probably coming back. It was like a drink, you know, kind of like that. And it over and over and over again. So what happens when you end up in these moments as a parent is that you begin to go through the five stages of grief. You've, you've experienced this. Some of you have experienced this. Uh, it starts with denial, which is, since we're in Exodus, more than a river in Egypt, as they say. Um, and you begin to not deny that it's happening, but maybe deny, you, you, you think, I'm going to be able to figure this out. 
Like, I'm going to be able to stop this. And there is within my skill set an ability to stop this. So I'm going so gonna, to gonna do that. Um, although you realize at some point in there that it, it, probably afterwards, what, what he really wanted, and I think this is the holy impulse of the people of God too, if we really wanted to stop it, what we needed to do was pull the car over and get him out of the car seat and hold him close and say, you know, I'm here and you're here and we're here together and I love you and I'm with you and, you know, I'm sure our spiritual energies would align and everything would get all beautiful, but we needed to get home. So that's not what we did. We kept going. The next stage is anger. And, you know, you can't really get angry at a small child. So at some, at some place in your psyche, you figure out how to channel that anger toward your spouse. And we were doing that kind of back and forth a little bit. And that goes on. And then you get into bargaining. You get into bargaining. And the bargaining, you'd think the bargaining effort that would work after you bargain with God is just to give him the drink. I mean, but here's what, here's, here, you already know, you already know this, so I'm not going to give it to you, but Elizabeth, I'm, I'm going to, you just, you don't have to yell at me, but tell me you want your drink. I want my drink. Okay, now, now take this, now here's what I want you to do next, I want you to throw it at me as hard as you can, okay? <laughs> and that's kind of what it was like. After a few times, we figured out he didn't really want his drink. He wanted that other thing we were talking about. He wanted to know that we were with him and that we loved him. And, and so this is going back and forth. Then you um, eventually move to uh, what? Acceptance, right? You, no, depression. And that gets really dark. And you go through that for a while. It's usually through Arkansas. And, and then... Um, and then you get into acceptance. And here's what acceptance looks like. I figured this out, and this is how I figured things out in my life. I mean, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to get him in better, any better, so why not mock him? And do something that amuses me. So what I would do is, instead of just sort of letting the darkness overcome me, is I turned up the music a little bit and kind of got the beat uh, of what was going on on the radio. And I'm, we're going to do this one more time. He, but just imagine it happening 17 times in a row. I'm going to three, two, one. And what I started doing was, I want my drink, I want my drink, I want my drink. I want my drink. I want my drink, I want my drink, I want my drink. Now that may not be funny to you, but, but it, you know, Christy looked at me like I was crazy, and then she kind of got into it. And so I was, I was, I was holding the, I want my drink, I want my drink, I want my drink beat, and Jackson was coming up behind us with the background vocals, I want my drink, I want my drink, I want my drink, I want my drink, I want, you know, you get into that. That's how we made it. Now, the reason he's heard this story is because when you do that as a mantra, it kind of gets in your head, and you just continue to hearken back to it over the years. So every now and then, the kids will be losing it, and we'll ask them, you know, do you want your drink? And, of course, also there are even more times where things will be getting really dark, and Christy and I will look at each other, and we'll say, I want my drink. And you all know what that's like, too, don't you? Sometimes you want your drink, and sometimes God wants God's drink too. And this is the moment we find God in in this story. God has said, I'm not going with you. If I take one more step, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. But Moses says, no, God, if you don't go, we don't want to go. We don't want to go anywhere where you are not. We don't ever want to experience that feeling again. 
So, so if we're going to go, you're going to go there, and, and we're going to follow you there. We want you to be with us and us to be with you. And so God says, okay, my presence will be with you. It's a really interesting moment. Because this moment represents an impulse, as we said, that we see throughout Scripture. And as we see the evolution of their understanding of God happening, as we talked about last week through this progressive revelation, what we either see is God responding differently, perhaps even more maturely, or we see that they have a maturing understanding of God and what it means for God to be present or not be present. We see this uh, especially if we look at one of the most formative, probably the most formative theological experience in the Old Testament, and that is the exile. So what happened in the exile is the people got taken away from their land and their temple got destroyed. And this was incredibly important for a lot of reasons, but the biggest reason was that at that point in their history, they identified God as a God of the land. God was tied to this land, and God was tied to this temple, and God was going to protect us in this space. Now, we have a bigger picture of God than that because we have a bigger story of God in our mind, but if you look at the evolution of their theological understanding of God, this is what you see. And so when the Babylonians came in, this world superpower comes in, and they uh, conquered the people, there is this sense or question in that moment of, have they also conquered our God? Are the Babylonian gods stronger than our God? So that's one question. Two, they destroy the temple, they take them away from their land. Have they taken us away from God? Will God be able to go with us where we're going. And they have this existential crisis where they, 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 what they believe is happening is they are taking, being taken away not only for their temple and their land, but from their God. But here's what begins to happen. And this happens in a really difficult circumstance. Sometimes it's the difficult circumstances that help us begin to see things that we never saw before. They get into Babylon and they're living in captivity and they have this hope and this, this dream that maybe God's going to come like, like God did in Egypt and, and deliver them from this place. But then they get this sense in the midst of the place that God is already there with them. God was there waiting for them. And so they ask God to deliver them and God says, no, I don't think so. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to start a family. I want you to make a life in this space. I want you to seek the shalom of the people that you are living in the midst of because in their shalom, when they find it, you'll find your shalom. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that future right now is here. And right now God's presence is here. It was God's way of saying in that moment, this is where we need to be and I love you and I'm with you. I love you and I'm with you. They continued to struggle with this idea. They continued to worry and wonder about it, so much so that the gospel expression that we see at the beginning of the New Testament seems to be in a direct response 
to it. Do you remember in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by the Word and through the Word, and all things are held into being through the Word. And we get this sense that Christ is the Word that was God at the beginning of creation. And then there's this powerful incarnational moment in John 1 where it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, with us, in a very human way. Now, I love Eugene Peterson's translation of this in the message where he says, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love the the common language there. But the exact translation of this verse is different. The exact translation harkens back to Exodus. The exact translation was, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled. What are they calling us back to here? The Exodus moment. The smoke of God's presence. The fire of God's presence. The light of God's presence dwelling among them. God is with us. And we know it because we can see it and we can touch it and we can can feel it. It's, It's right here. And then as their understanding of God and their relationship with God continues to unfold, what do we see in John? We can see it. We can touch it. We can hear it. It's right here. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But even after three years of experiencing this, there is still this existential worry. There is still this wondering, am I going to do something that is going to cause me to step away from God? Is there anything I can do to get outside of the presence of God or the love of God? Are there, are there decisions I can make or steps that I can take that would cause God to leave me behind? And we see this setting in at the end of the gospel when Jesus starts talking about going away. And they begin to get worried. They begin to get scared. Little, little children, he says, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but in the meantime, I'm going to send you my very presence. Echoing this idea at the end of Matthew's Gospel where he says, and lo, I am with you always. I'm with you always. And so we have this Pentecostal moment early in the church where the people are waiting and wondering about the presence of God, and then all of a sudden, the presence of God that they seem to have learned at different points is always there, infused them in a new way. To help them and know and us know for always that God loves us and God is always with us. But not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Because the purpose of God in that moment is revealed as the presence of God, not just in the world, but working in and through us. So that as we engage with God's presence, and as we live out the life of Christ in the world, our lives can be a gospel testimony to others, calling them back to that truth. God loves you, and God is with you. No matter what you're going through, 
God loves you and God is with you. No matter who you are or what you have done or left undone, God loves you and God is with you. That is the gospel. God loves you and God is with you. I want you to hear that now and I want you to say that now to one another and I know there's going to be a temptation for some of you just to stare at me and not break eye contact while you do this, but I'm going to give you some instructions. And you have to decide. So if you're going to be the one to speak first, you can hold your hand and let the person next to you know. But look at, turn and look at the people next to you. And I want you to look them in the eye, and one of you plan to speak, and one of you plan to listen first. And I want you to say to them, uh, God loves you. God is with you. Now, now, if you heard that, now you say it back. God loves you. And God is with you. Friends, God loves you. And God is with you. God loves you no matter who you are, what you're going through, what you've done or left undone in your life. The living God who is love loves you and is with you. And that is always something to celebrate. We do that now as we worship together.